Hello everyone, welcome back to Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General Podcast. I am Al, and today we're going to be doing a retro review. We're going to be taking a look at the Dungeons & Dragons Rules Cyclopedia. Now I do apologize that this is going to be a, kind of an impromptu, off-the-cuff episode, and also I apologize, I'm uh, dropping the episode a lot later than usual. To make a long story short, they've been piling on the overtime at my day job, which I'm not complaining because while that is nice for the paycheck, it does take time away from other things. And the last few months, couple months or so, I've been doing episodes on the different outer planes and as they are you know, how they're pictured in Dungeons and Dragons in First Edition's Manual of the Planes. And I enjoy doing those episodes, but they do require quite a bit of research. There's sometimes there's stuff that maybe I'm pretty confident with, but I just want to make sure that I'm getting a name or something else right. Other times I came across things that I totally didn't know anything about. So, uh, like I said, I, I, I like to research that, and I just want to make sure I'm getting accurate information out. And I hope that my desire to research and get everything accurate to put together a well-informed, educational, and entertaining podcast, I hope that does show when you listen to the final product. Also, uh, just a reminder that on my store at drivethroughstuff.com, I am still offering my Hurricane uh, Harvey charity bundle, which, again, the process or the, the profits from that, that product uh, will be going to the American Red Cross to help with the hurricane relief efforts, not just in Texas, but, you know, of course, down in uh, Florida. And I know Louisiana got hit and I'm sure there's other places that are definitely going to need all the help they can get to bounce back from uh, the recent hurricanes that have hit the U.S. But on to today's topic, and that is the D&D Rules Cyclopedia. Now, I have to thank someone before I begin, my good friend Dan from the Radio Free Borderlands podcast. You know, he's on the the show every now and then, and usually I mention him quite frequently, especially when I'm talking about some of my older days as a gamer, you know, back in like middle school, high school, college, you know, because we've been good friends for many, many years. And he knew that I was uh, looking for a copy of the D&D Rules Cyclopedia, and when he was at uh, Gen Con this last summer, he was nice enough to pick one up that didn't cost him an arm and a leg. Uh, it was only 40 bucks. Now, granted, it's in a bit of a beat-up shape, but hey, as far as I'm concerned, it gives a little character to the book. And the Rules Cyclopedia, probably one of the more expensive D&D books that I've seen, uh, usually, if you look for it on eBay, even a, a copy that's beat up and maybe you know the spines coming undone and all that will still go for anywhere from thirty to fifty dollars. Uh, 
And if you want to get one that's in really good condition, you're probably looking at anywhere from 90 to to $100. So it's definitely a book that's in demand. Uh, probably the only book I've seen that tends to run more than, or maybe not more, but uh, that tends to command really high prices is the uh, Deities and Demigods from 1st Edition, specifically the one that has the Cthulhu and the uh, Elric stuff in it, uh, especially if you're talking about the first printing, because in that book there were four different printings. Uh, the first one had the, you know, your common mythologies, Norse, Greek, uh, Egypt, and so on. They also had the some of the stuff from the, the Nuhan books, because TSR did have the the licensing rights to that particular uh, book series. It also had stuff from the Cthulhu mythos, as well as the Ehrlich saga. I think that's how it's pronounced, the, the stuff with like Stormbringer. And then the after a while, after they sold the book a little bit, they were informed that uh, the Cthulhu stuff wasn't quite in public domain, and another company, Chaosium, had the rights to both that and the Ehrlich Saga stuff, so they uh, had to make a second printing where they acknowledged them, and then in the third printing, they decided they were going to take out that stuff so they didn't have to acknowledge a competitor. But I guess like the back cover still listed uh, the stuff that wasn't in the book. And then eventually they had the fourth printing that was, you know, correct. It didn't have any of the stuff they didn't have rights to, and it didn't acknowledge uh, Chaosium. So that's another one of those books that, whether you're getting it at a used bookstore or on eBay, probably going to fetch you, I don't know, maybe 50, 60 bucks, depending on what condition it's in. But on to the Dungeons & Dragons Rules Cyclopedia. It was released in 1991, and for those who maybe had never heard it, heard of the Cyclopedia, or not seen it, essentially what it is, it combines a lot of the rules from the four boxed sets of basic Dungeons and Dragons back when elf, race, elf, uh, halfling and dwarf were not just your race, but also your class. And, you know, back when the only alignments were lawful, neutral and chaotic. And just to take a little look back, the way that they released the D and D products back then was probably not something you would see nowadays because they had the four box sets where first there was the red box set that was Dungeons and Dragons, the basic set. So this just told you how to create characters up to third level. Also had a separate book with monsters and DMing stuff. And then it had the classic module packed in with it, the keep on the borderlands, and it also had a set of dice. Then they released the expert set, which I think that one covered characters up to like level, I think 13 or 16, somewhere in there. 
and it also had the Isle of Dread, another um, one of those classic timeless modules. After that, they had the companion set, which came in kind of a teal-colored box, and that I think was up to level 20 or 25, I'm not sure. And then finally, there was the master set, which took you all the way up to level 36. Beyond that, we had the gold box, and that was the immortal box set. And collectively, it's called uh, B-E-C-M-I, or some people pronounce it Beckme or Besemi, however you want to pronounce it, but that's what they're referring to. And the nice thing about the Rule Cyclopedia is it takes all this material from basic, expert, companion, and masters and puts it all into one big 304-page book. And this is one of the reasons why I still recommend getting it if you can, even though it can cost you quite a bit, is it does give you a lot of material there. You definitely get your money's worth because not only does it include the stuff from the four box sets, but in the back they also have a little bit about uh, the Mistara, which was the default campaign setting for basic D&D. So it, it has uh, it has some maps that you can't really pull out of the, the book, but it has some of those beautiful full-color maps, uh, like any of you who've bought... Uh, maybe some of the box sets that came out in 1st edition and 2nd edition. Remember, they had those huge fold-out maps. Well, it was done in that particular style. And not only that, it also had a globe map of the known world. And it, which you look at it, it's like, okay, you think they were probably taking some real-world inspiration there because... Uh, one of the continents, Bruin, or Bruin, uh, looks vaguely like North America. The southern con- continent of uh, Devania, uh, that looks, well, very similar to how South America and Africa would look if you push them together. And then there's a region to the south that uh, looks like Antarctica pushed up against them. And then there's a couple other large islands that resemble that well they look kind of like Europe or at least how Europe would look if it was uh flooded over and then there's another continent uh Skothar that is looks like it was probably part of uh Russia and maybe a little bit of the peninsula out to the you know the east and how it might look if the you know if it was connected to Japan uh, if there was, you know, if that was above the ocean. And not only that, on the inside, they have the Hollow World. Because it was, this was another one of those interesting campaign settings that, uh, they did release. There are people who think that our own planet, the Earth, is in fact hollow. Where, uh, you know, if you go to the poles, the planet starts to curve inward and you can actually go inside the Earth. And TSR did make a setting based on Hollow World. I'm not too familiar with it, unfortunately. 
Um, so it, it still does sound interesting. I mean, it's one of those little conspiracy theory type concepts. You know, there are people that really do believe that our Earth is hollow and it's uh, lit by a sun in the center and thus makes life possible there. Uh, these are the only full-color images in the inside of the book. Most of the rest of the book, everything is uh, black and white art and where they have tables, they've got sort of a greenish color there. Uh, also, there's borders at the top and bottom of the pages that are done in black and a greenish color. So real easy on the eyes. My main complaint with the formatting, though, is that the page numbers are really, they really get buried in the bottom uh, border of the page. So sometimes it can be a little difficult, when, especially when you're first looking at the book, to find where the, the page numbers are. When I was just uh, paging through the book, well, it, you know, it took me a, a moment or two to find where the, uh, the page numbers were. So it not only covers your character creation, but also has uh, the uh, clerical magic user spells, your equipment, and it also incorporates some of the advanced character uh, options that were in the Companion and Master set. One of the things that I did like about the uh, Companion rules is they did give some additional options for fighters and cleric. First, the Companion Rules introduced the Druid class into Basic. If you were a neutral-aligned cleric, uh, once you got to a certain level, uh, just flipping through the book here, okay, 9 to 29th level, you could become a Druid. So it had the rules in there. And it also had the different rules for the high-level fighters. It was... Well, for the most part, uh, in basic D&D, it was assumed that once your fighter reached a certain level, he would be rewarded with attractive land that he could build upon. And presumably it would be from some noble or some king who was grateful for some service that the fighter had, you know, did for him. And the, uh, these were landowning fighters. But maybe you've got a fighter that isn't really interested in settling down and establishing a keep or a stronghold. Well, it had options for uh, wandering fighters. And once a fighter got to, I think it was ninth level, yep, ninth level, uh, the fighter could decide to become either a paladin, a knight, or an avenger. So a lawful fighter could choose to become a paladin. And I talked a little bit about that, and I think the other two options when I was doing my uh, episode on the evolution of fighters and paladins through the different editions of Dungeons & Dragons. So that's another one of those series that yeah, I got kind of tossed on the back burner, but I hope to do that for some of the other classes uh, in the future. So a paladin in basic really wasn't too much different from the paladin and how he was portrayed in uh, first and second edition. Uh, knights 
they were either neutral fighters or lawful fighters that didn't qualify to become a paladin. And these these knights didn't really have they didn't have the spell casting and magical abilities that a paladin does. They were more or less your they were the romantic image that we see or we think about rather whenever we're talking about knights of the Middle Ages. So they weren't necessarily required to be chivalrous, but it was assumed that they would serve uh, some sort of king or a baron or a liege of some kind, and he would go on various quests for that that ruler. And he could uh, request sanctuary there, and, you know, so that not really too much in the way of game mechanics, more or less just some role-playing abilities in there. And then finally, the Avenger, which I guess you could say they're more or less kind of like an anti-paladin, where they're chaotic fighters. Um, they did get uh, some spell-casting abilities, um, but I, as I recall, uh, they wouldn't really do any healing spells. They would just do the you know the reverses of them. And, you know, so it just gave you some interesting ideas for higher-level fighters. Uh, now, I haven't had a chance to fully skim over the book, but um, they did give some options for uh, dwarves, elves, and uh, halflings when they got to higher levels as well. There is one thing I noticed, though, that they didn't include in the character class section, which I kind of missed. They were just a nice little touch. Uh, those of you who have played the the basic expert rules, you'll notice that you know you weren't just a first level fighter or a second level wizard. You know, you had a title that went with it. So, like the you know a fighter, you were a you know a, well. I don't have my my box set. Uh, in easy grasp here, but it was like, you know, you were, first level you were a veteran, and then second level it gave you some other title, and uh, I remember they did this in first edition as well, where, like, Rangers, for example, had some, uh, you know, titles like Pathfinder, Strider, uh, Ranger Knight, Ranger Lord, so just, again, more or less just kind of a nice little uh, role-playing touch. And they... I think they did have some higher level options for thieves and wizards and clerics as well, but since I haven't really played those classes as much, I'm not as familiar with um the you know how they introduced you know higher level options for those characters. And they also did introduce uh the monk, or no, I'm sorry, not the monk, uh the mystic, which is essentially a basic D&D's version of the monk from first edition. So those of you who wanted to play a, a martial artist could do so in basic. Now, as in addition to your normal uh, stuff like, you know, your weapons and equipment, they did give you, there's a chapter, other character abilities. So this is where we see some of the uh, influence from basic I'm sorry, not basic, uh, first edition and second edition uh, AD&D, it gave 
uh, fighters the option to specialize and, you know, become better in different types of uh, weapons. Which, well, this is another one of those things that's kind of weird just looking through the book. Uh, They introduced armor classes from uh, 19 down to negative 20. That, I think, is overkill. I personally think 10 to negative 10 is just fine. And then I, they also did introduce a few couple, uh, you know, combat maneuvers you could try as well. Uh, like one of my uh, favorite pictures from the this one, there's a, a fighter with two swords jumping around and it looks like he's yelling something and there's a, a hill giant sitting there leaning on his club and uh, just kind of yawning like, yeah, you're not impressing me. And they also did introduce uh, some skills that would be similar to the non-weapon proficiencies. And not only did this appear in the Rule Cyclopedia, I know in the two uh, Monster Compendium books that I have, uh, the or Creature Crucible, I'm sorry, uh, Tall Tales of the Wee Folk and Top Ballista, they do have uh, some skills that they put in there as well. So there's are there are a few things in here that I don't think I've ever seen in some of the other versions of D&D. So who knows? Uh maybe you could go back and look and maybe find a use for some of these skills. Like for example, there's one uh called food tasting. So this one would give you a chance to uh if you're tasting something, maybe tell if it's poisoned or not. And uh, there's a couple I remember that were introduced in uh, Tall Tales of the Wee Folk, eating and drinking. And essentially what that would let you do is eat and drink more food or, and drink than, than normal and not get sick. And you would use that to, well, it would be kind of like a reserve gas tank where you're, you know, I guess you've trained your body to make, you know, the food you eat go a little longer, so maybe you can go a little bit longer than the average person without uh, food or drink. So definitely some very uh, interesting ideas that you might be able to glean in there. And then, of course, there are your standard chapters about uh, various uh, things that you can do in combat. Um, they, you know, of course, list all the many different combat rules They also have rules for aerial combat, naval combat, underwater combat, and uh, even siege combat as well. After the various chapters dedicated to things that players might need to know, it does give a lot of good information for Dungeon Masters. Because not only do we have uh, your section on monsters and magic items, it has some of your other standard things. There's a chapter dedicated to campaigning. Um, they have uh, rules for mass combat, uh, giving out experience points, um, how different things might work, like ability checks or a charm person spell. And one of the things that, honestly, I'm kind of surprised that they included in this was the rules for the immortals, uh, mainly because... Well, again, it gets into that whole idea of religion and role-playing where, you know, some people are just fine with keeping things generic. 
you know, if you're a cleric, you don't have to say, I'm a cleric of Thor, or I'm a cleric of Ares, or I'm a cleric of, of Osiris, you know, you're just a generic cleric. But, and this goes back to the, you know, the, the early mid eighties, uh, during the height of the satanic panic, when people were concerned that, oh, having real world, uh, deities listed in, Dungeons and Dragons is going to make kids turn to paganism or Satanism or the occult. And, you know, of course, we saw in second edition, they started to remove some of that. So the uh, that's why I'm kind of surprised that they did decide to keep the immortal rules. But I, I think it is better for it. Um, now, they did have a separate box set for the immortals. Uh, the stuff in there comes from, it was the master set where... It talked about how you could become one of four different types of immortals. The epic hero, the paragon, the dionist, and the polymath. Uh, so, my friend Dan, we, we did an episode on his uh, Radio Free Borderlands podcast where we talked a little bit about that and also talked about some of the other rules for becoming immortal or achieving godhood in the various Dungeons and Dragons editions. So go check that out if you're uh, if you have the chance. So that's all about I really have to say about the uh, rule cyclopedia for now. As I said, it it can run you a pretty penny if you buy it from uh, eBay or a used bookstore or. You know, at least if you buy it at a rummage sale from someone who recognizes the, uh, you know, the the value of it. Uh, my friend Chad, I think he said he had a when we were doing a podcast uh, a while ago that one of his friends found a copy of the Rules Cyclopedia at a garage sale for like I think it was like three or four dollars. So yeah, we're unfortunately you're probably not going to get that lucky. But if you decide that you would like to check out the uh, Rules Cyclopedia, but maybe you don't want to drop $40 or $50 on a book that, you know, has some, you know, wear and tear on it, or you maybe definitely don't want to drop $100 on a copy that's in better condition, there is an alternative. On the uh, Wizards of the Coast store on drivethroughstuff.com and the other websites where they sell their stuff, um, they do have the PDF version of the Rule Cyclopedia. And I actually did pick that up a while ago. Uh, and it was only like, I got it on sale for five bucks, but I think it's normally about $10. So still, not bad because you're getting it in a digital format, so not not too hard to read if you're looking at it on a like an iPad or a, a tablet. So uh, definitely looking forward to going through the book and getting reacquainted with some of the material in there, because uh, I was actually interested in trying to do more uh, campaigning with basic D and D. There were some good modules written back then, and. It is fun to take uh, newer players on a basic D&D game. Uh, just what we, for my current group of friends that I game with at my local hobby store, uh, several months ago we decided to do basic, and we did it old school, where, again, you roll 3d6 for your stats, 
You roll them in the order, so if you rolled a low strength but a high intelligence, then you're probably going to be a wizard. And then we, you know, roll, didn't, no max hit points at first level. Everyone rolled for their hit points. And we all ended up making about, you know, four or five different characters. And I, I think we didn't even get through the first floor of the dungeon, uh, bef- before we, uh, we killed all of our characters off. It, it kind of reminded me of, um, another RPG that I played once or twice, uh, Paranoia. Where in that game, each of your characters, you get, you know, you get a certain number of clones. And, you know, whenever you die, the the computer, who is your friend, of course, the computer is your friend. He will send a new clone over to you. And, you know, hopefully you uh, don't burn through all your clones during the course of that adventure. So that was a game. I've, I've only played it a couple times, but it was a lot of fun, as I recall. So I'd like to thank you for joining me again today, and have a good evening, or morning, or afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are, and happy gaming. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio.